0: Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 6. And you guys made it. We have made it through the book of Ephesians together. So everybody, you deserve a round of applause. Congratulations for that. And then if you've been with us on Wednesdays since the beginning of the year, that means you've knocked out Philippians and you've knocked out Ephesians. And on top of that, we kick off Colossians next Wednesday with Pastor Frankie. And we are just going to roll through those prison epistles. And um, next one would be Philemon. And we're going to chunk off, by by the end of this year, we will have hacked off a good portion of the New Testament. And that's exciting to me. That's really exciting to me. I read somewhere that um, 26% of Christians in America read their Bible um, every week. And I was like, wow, a quarter of Christians read their Bible every week. Well, I'm excited because we've knocked off two books and we're aiming at our third and we're just marching our way through the word of God. So that's exciting to me. And um, I'm putting a bow on the book of Ephesians tonight in Ephesians 6 because we've been studying... This amazing book, and this book is very doctrinal. It's very heady, and I was talking to Pastor Frankie about it. It's sort of like, as a speaker, it's difficult because Ephesians has all of these amazing nuggets, like a patchwork quilt, of very different colored blocks and squares of truth. And normally, when you preach, it's easy to tell a story, which is sort of like crocheting a sweater. You know, a story sort of all these different threads come together, and you you realize you see this picture. But with Ephesians, it's like like wow there's no storytelling here this is about the mystery of the gospel the relationship between God and his church and you're like whoa this is really I've got to take my time and go through this piece by piece by piece and so tonight we get to look at the last installment from our friend Paul from his prison cell in Ephesians 6 but before I get into that I want to recap a little bit about what Pastor Frankie said in Ephesians 5. Because Paul's talked about all this heady stuff, all this like, doctrinal truth and this amazing relationship between Christ and his church, and then he gets down to the nitty-gritty of it with us in Ephesians 5 and 6 and says, hey, this is how you're supposed to live. It's all well and good for us to have this, this doctrinal understanding, but now I'm going to ring your front doorbell. I'm going to get down to where you live, and this is how we should live and how we should react and how we should be together on this globe. And Pastor Frankie took Ephesians 5, and I just want to highlight two things that he said. The first thing Paul tells us is he says, be imitators of Christ. All right, I've told you all this stuff, but at the end of the day, this is how you should live. Everybody, be an imitator of Christ. So he starts off with just everyone, single, old, young, widowed, married, be an imitator of Christ. And then Paul writes a bit more and he finishes up the fifth chapter and he says, now, husbands, this is how you need to treat your wives. Wives, this is how you need to treat your husbands. So he's taking society, he says, this is everybody. Now, some of you is married and this is how your husbands need to act and this is how your wives need to act. And what I love about that is Pastor Frankie said, there's no asterisk, because I have looked for that footnote he referenced when it says, wives, honor your husbands. And I was praying about that and thinking about that. And what I loved about what what Pastor Frankie was teaching about, I was just kind of rolling, just kind of absorbing. You know how you hear something, you got to like chew on it for like a week or so. it occurs to me that that wives, it says, honor your husbands. I I was in a place where um, Todd and I were not seeing eye to eye on something. And we're not Italian. We don't yell at each other and turn the furniture upside down. We are far too Eastern for that. You know what I mean? We're pretty, we're pretty even kill people. And I was just brushing my teeth mainly because I didn't want to say something I'd regret. You know, it was one morning I was brushing my teeth and brushing my teeth and looking in the mirror and I was like, Lord, you know I'm right. You always take my side, right, Jesus? You know I'm right, right? And I'm sitting here brushing my teeth and I felt the Lord speak to me and he's like, Sarah, do you want to change Todd's heart or his mind? Because you could probably do one of those at very high expense. And if you want his heart changed, I work alone. And I was like wow I guess I need to brush my teeth again (laughs) but it just resonated in me and I've just trusted the Lord that Lord you are in the heart changing business and so father I submit that to you and then when I pray for Todd I'm like Lord Jesus Lord Jesus give my husband wisdom help me to be an encouragement and a helpmate to him Because I don't want to be a GPS, turn left, turn right, go 4.5 miles, go off the road. You guys have seen those GPS's? Lord, help me be a compass. I just want to reflect truth in my home. I want to reflect Christ in my home. So that when we're not sure which direction we go, not turn left, turn right, go forward, back up. Let me just reflect Jesus. And so Paul's like, wives, honor your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And died for her. So I was like, man, that's how Paul wants to end Ephesians. This is how everybody needs to act. Be an imitator of Christ. Husbands and wives, this is how you need to act. And then we jump into Ephesians 6. So if you've got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm just going to go ahead and read about 10 verses, and then I'm going to kind of just slowly unpack it, if that sounds good to you guys. And my, my message tonight is called Living in the Crosshairs, because I'm going to talk about vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. And it reminds me of a scope, you know, like on a rifle, we're all from Texas, we've all seen a rifle scope before, and I want to live right there, right there in the center of the vertical and the horizontal. So that's where I'm going to start tonight. And got your Bible, Ephesians 6, 1 through 10, and I'm going to read from the Amplified. So here we go. Children, obey your parents in the Lord as His representatives, for this is just and right. Honor, esteem, and value as precious your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger, do not exasperate them to resentment but rear them tenderly in the training and discipline and the counsel and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to those who are your physical masters, having respect for them and eager concern to please them and singleness of motive with all of your heart as service to Christ himself. Not in the way of eye service as if they were watching you and only to please men but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God heartily and with your whole soul, rendering service readily with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive his reward from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters act in the same way towards them, giving up threatening and using violent and abusive words, knowing that he who is both master and yours in heaven, and that there is no respect of persons nor partiality with him. So let's unpack that a little bit, because now we're talking about relationships. Paul says, hey, this is how everybody should live. This is how husbands and wives should live. And he's kind of taking society layer by layer by layer. And then he goes to children which is a natural byproduct of people getting married, right? That stuff happens after you get married, you end up with children. And he says here, children, obey your parents and the Lord as his representatives, for this is just and right. And I sit here and I'm like, Lord, my first point, if you're taking notes, is your horizontal relationships are a reflection of your vertical relationships, So what's happening around you and these relationships, how you relate to people, how you treat people, how you love people, that is a reflection of the authority Christ has in your life, of the relationship you have vertically. And we're going to start with children because it's always easy to spot it in kids before it is us, right? Have you guys ever been to the mall or someplace and you see some kids acting up and you think to yourself, where are those parents? Who who is this baby's mama? Where is this child's parents? And you're sitting here like, what is up with these kids? They're going crazy. And you sit here and you're like, man, that kid just doesn't have any authority in his life, right? Who's in charge here? It's easy to see it in children. And I'm always worried when you, the only authority you have in your life is your own will. That is scary. That is incredibly scary. The book of Judges ends that way. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is, that's anarchy. So when the only authority you have in your life is your will, I can already tell you how that's going to go. That is not going to end pretty. And when he says in, in Ephesians 6-1, children, obey your parents in the Lord as his representatives, for this is just and right, he's basically saying, okay, how society's going to learn the rules, it's going to start right here. This is the first government, the first organization God makes. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't just kind of throw them into chaos. He actually established social order. He took the woman to the man, he created a family, and then he told them to go subdue the earth. And then he gave them children. And he's like, now children, obey your parents. He's like, this is long before there was cops and robbers and governors and legislatures and everything else. He's establishing social order. And he says, Look, this is the authority that is in the child's life. Everything we're going to talk about is how these relationships horizontally, this first part tonight, is a reflection of the authority we recognize vertically. And so he starts off with kids kids, obey your children. O- o- children, obey your parents in the Lord, honor and esteem them. For this is the commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. People ask me all the time, well, why do I need to honor my mom and my dad? They were not good people. And I always say, I am so sorry. Because the child's first impression of who God is is usually through their parents. That's the first authority they recognize. And my heart breaks and I say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry your parents were evil. That is not right. I am so thankful to a God who is bigger than anything that could have come between you and him that he reached past all of that and still got to your heart and showed you true love when you didn't have it in a home. I'm so thankful to God for that. And they say, well, why do I have to honor my parents? And I say, so that it'll be well with you. It has nothing to do with your mom and dad. The scripture says, honor your parents so that it'll be well with you. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to honor those people who meant evil for me. Because honestly, the authority that Jesus has in my life is bigger than anything anybody could ever do to me. And that's the way it works. So Paul goes from parents and then he says, now parents, this is how you need to be treating your children. It says, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to resentment. When I read that, I was like, at the end of the day, mom and dad, don't move the goalpost on the kid. Nothing is more exasperating to me than to have a goal and then somebody move the goalpost on you. Has that ever happened to anybody? Hey, if you will do X, Y, and Z, you get one, two, and three. And then it's like, well, you did X, Y, and Z, but now I wanna do la, 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 la. Man, that drives me crazy. And Paul's like, look, parents, dads, don't irritate and provoke your kids to anger. Don't exasperate them to resentment because you're the first taste of authority that they've ever had. We're going to train their hearts to receive Jesus one day, and they're going to need to see it in you. And the way you discipline is going to be the way they receive discipline from here on out. You know, I, I was praying about this, and the Holy Spirit is still disciplining and parenting me today. I am 36 years old and I am still getting parented. Anybody here with me in that? And I love the way the Holy Spirit comes to me. He always comes to me in love. And he always comes to me with the end in mind. His goal is to reconcile me. Even though I'm in error, his goal is to reconcile me. And so when I go to my kids, I'm like, Lord Jesus, I want to parent my kids like you parent me. Lord, I want to come to them with the end in mind that reconciliation is my goal and that just like scripture says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. It says he is treating you like sons. And so when I come to my kids, I'm like, you know what, this isn't a game of gotcha. This is not a game of I'm moving the goalposts on you and I'm trying to make you resent discipline. This is a fact that you're going to be disciplined the rest of your life. And it's not always going to be as easy as five minutes time out. (laughs) Right now, it's pretty easy. One day, you're going to be 36 like mommy. And the discipline is going to come from a holy God. But you'll be able to receive it in love. Because I'm going to teach you how to receive it right here with the help of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's like, hey, society, it's all well and good to write this really lofty book. But at the end of the day, this is how we got to live. So moms and dads, this is how you got to treat your kids. Kids, this is how you got to treat your parents. Husbands and wives, this is how you got to treat each other. And then everybody be an imitator of Christ. So we keep going through here and he gets down to the employer-employee relationship. And he says, that's really incredible because you look at this whole, this whole swatch of scripture and he devotes the most verses to that relationship right there. It was like he almost knew in 2015 people would be working 50 and 60 hours and working hard and you know most of the conflict we have is sometimes at the workplace because we spend more time with those people than we do our own families. And so he's like, "Well, let me dedicate about four verses to how that ought to work out." And it says here, "Be obedient to those who are your physical masters, having respect for them." An eager concern to please them. And singleness of motive with your heart as service to Christ himself. That's verse 5. This is the deal. Your work is not a means of just making a living. Your work is an act of worship. You know, a lot of people think that there's this this lie that work is the curse. You know, before the curse, before the fall of man, in the Garden of Eden, nobody had to work. It was paradise. And then Eve took the fruit. And now, man, we've all got to work for a living. And that's actually inaccurate. When you go back and you read it, work existed before the fall of man. Because God told Adam and Eve to take dominion over the earth to subdue it and to fill it. Well, golly, y'all, subduing, dominion, and fulfilling, that's work. That takes hard work. So when we look at our work today and we're like, you know, gosh, it's work. I wish I didn't have to work. I wish I didn't have to work. You are actually wired up to work from the Garden of the Eden. Your fulfillment can be found in the skills and the ability that your God has given you so that you can complete an assignment, that you can be the artist, the musician, the the physician, the doctor, the teacher, that no one else can be on this planet except for you. Now, here's the curse part. So Adam and Eve, you know, you have the sin and they fall and they get out of the garden and and what happens? The Lord says, by the sweat of your brow will you eat... And the earth will produce thorn and thistle. Everybody's read that part, right? Well, now that's the curse. Scarcity's the curse. Your work is not the curse. God has called you to this. Your livelihood is a means of you being able to worship your God. Lord, you made me to do this, and when I do this, I feel your pleasure. Lord, I know that, God, this is the season and the thing you've called me to. I'm supposed to teach math to these 10th graders, and, Lord, I know this is where I have to be. That's not the curse. Scarcity is the curse. But now here's the great news, church. God says, When you're in covenant with me, you know what my job is? I rebuke scarcity. I rebuke the devourer for your sakes. So work is not the curse. Scarcity is the curse, but great news. You're on my team. You're in covenant with me, and I have the authority to rebuke scarcity, and it's not going to touch your life. That's not the struggle you're going to have. So he's talking to employers and employees, and he says, do your work as unto Christ himself. Make it an act of worship. Make it an act of worship and a sacrifice. And we keep on rolling through. And he says, render, in verse 7, service readily with goodwill as to the Lord and not unto men. And he says, don't do it in the way of eye service. (laughs) I was reading this article recently, and they said, the American work ethic is in danger like, the, they're really concerned about how, you know, our grandparents worked back in the day, and our great-grandparents worked, that that work ethic, that drive that is sort of the American drive is changing, and that Americans just don't have that same work ethic. And by work ethic, I mean integrity. Like, a workman shakes hands with a laborer and says, I'll give you X pay for X number of days. You know, we shook hands on on how many weeks a year you'd work for me, and I, I agree to pay you X. And I'm looking here, and he says, look, integrity is a part of how the servant, how the employer and the employee has to work. Don't do it like I service. Look really busy when he comes around. Oh And then when he's gone, you're kind of like checking YouTube out. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, act like integrity. I tell my kids, I told my son, because that's a big word, Integrity's doing the right thing when nobody's looking. And Paul says, hey, if this whole thing's going to work, employees do the right thing even when nobody's looking. Act like it's an act of worship to Christ himself. This is how it's going to work. So we keep moving down, and he says, now wait a second. Bosses, you're not off the hook. He says, masters, in the same way, Give up threatening and using violent and abusive words. How many of you guys have ever had a horrible boss? Oh, my goodness. I worked in a newsroom in New York City for Fox News Channel. I want to tell you, my little southern self from a Baptist college had not heard most of the words that those people were saying to each other. (gasps) I was like, I hope my mom doesn't call me at work because she's going to overhear this and she'll still wash my mouth out with soap, you know? I was like, I didn't even know that was a verb. That's incredible. I can't believe you conjugated that like that. Man, you know, I got quite an education. And so I sat there and it made a memorable impression on me. And then I went from a newsroom in New York City to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., I'm here to tell you the language did not improve. (laughs) You just heard a few more accents mixed in it, you know, and it just made this impression on me that I thought, man, God, if I'm ever responsible for anyone, Lord, help me to learn from this season, to help my words to always be edifying, even in confrontation. God, help me never to be abusive in my language God, I never want to be treated that way. So, Lord, keep me from treating anybody else that way. Anybody ever been like that? You had a horrible boss and it made you a better person because you never treated anybody like that again? Holy mackerel. And so, Paul's sitting here and he's like, Masters, act in the same principle toward them. Give up threatening and using violent and abusive words, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours in heaven, there is no respecter of persons, no partiality with him. So basically he says, hey, you think you're hot stuff here, boss? (laughs) Guess what? I am not a respecter of persons, and I actually care how you treat people. And I'm watching. And when you get to heaven, I'm going to take account of that, and I'm going to vindicate them. You know, that's what I love about the gospel. It says, do not take vengeance, for vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I always think about that. It always keeps me from reacting in a situation. Because I figure that God is a much better advocate for me than I could ever be for myself. And it stills my tongue because I'm like, Lord, revenge is not mine to pass out. Mm -mm. No, I'm going to let you take care of that, Jesus. Lord, stay my tongue. Help me to honor you. Help me to imitate you in this moment. Lord Jesus, and help me to learn how you want me to treat others. Amen? So he gets through this, and he says, In conclusion, verse 10, it says, In conclusion, be strong in the Lord, be empowered through your union with him, draw your strength from him, that strength which his boundless might provides. Here's the deal. The vertical relationship, your union with him, The strength you draw from him is exactly how you're going to treat all the people we just talked about. He says at the end of the day... At the end of the day, in conclusion, this is how it's all going to work. You're not sure how to treat your spouse? Be an imitator of Christ. You're not sure how to relate to your parents? Be an imitator of Christ. You're not sure how to parent your children? Be an imitator of Christ. You're not sure how to treat your boss or how to react when you're in a bad situation? Be an imitator of Christ. You're not sure how to lead other people? Be an imitator of Christ. And he says, in conclusion, everything, every relationship you have horizontally... Draw your strength from him and his union from him. And that's what's going to fuel it. Amen. So that's the first part of our, of our study here in Ephesians 6. And then he changes gears on us all together. He's taught us how to live with each other face to face and interact in this way. And then he changes the subject altogether, together, but not really. And we jump into it in Ephesians 6.12. He says, for we are not wrestling... With flesh and blood contending only with physical opponents, but against despotisms, against the powers, against the master spirits who are rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces and wickedness in heavenly supernatural spheres. So we're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Paul, 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 time out in the prison cell. You just spent all this time teaching us how to work with each other. And now you're saying we're not even wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers of this present darkness. And this is my second point. <laughs> What's happening in your vertical relationships is going to play itself out in your horizontal relationships. <laughs> so you're like, wait a second. You just made the same point twice. You are so sneaky, crazy, Aunt Sarah. <laughs> yes, I am. It's true. What's happening vertically ends up putting on flesh and blood horizontally. Paul's like, look, this is how everybody needs to treat each other, but at the end of the day, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. What? You just told me how to treat my wife. Yes, I did. You just told me how to raise my children. Yes, I did. But I'm here to tell you, you're not even wrestling with flesh and blood. You're wrestling against principalities and despotisms in this present darkness. (sighs) mind-blowing because here's the deal satan doesn't want anything you have he doesn't want your car he don't want the money in your bank account all four dollars and 23 cents of it (laughs) in the case of harris stevens he doesn't necessarily want your marriage he doesn't necessarily want your your body or anything like that that's not what satan's after what satan's after is for you to give up on jesus And he will use your marriage, and he will use your bank account, and he will use your body, and he will use your car, whatever it's got to take to get you to give up on Jesus. But that's his goal. He has set himself up against the throne of God. And it started back in the Garden of Eden, the gal we just talked about, where we talked about work and the curse. Well, as soon as Satan tricks Eve in Genesis 3.15, God says, because you have done this, I will put enmity between your seed, your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. And you will lie in wait. The Amplified Bible says you will lie in wait and strike his heel, but he will ground your head underfoot. So from that point on, it's been on like Donkey Kong. He has been coming for you, not because of anything you got, but because the incorruptible seed of Jesus Christ is in you, and his hand is set against the throne of God, and he's like, look, if I can't have Sarah, if I can't defeat Jesus on the cross, then I'm going to defeat and I'm going to try to eliminate anybody who represents Jesus on this earth. That's the only play I've got left. Because for years, all the way through the Old Testament, you read about all these wars, right? The Pezocytes, the Canaanites the termites whatever all these people <laughs> who we can't pronounce their names they're always fighting there's always a war somebody's always getting a head cut off or worse and we say then what is all this about like are the children of Israel like that bad that everybody wants to live in the same like square desert that they live in the answer is no Satan doesn't care about the children of Israel but the whole Old Testament he's like ho 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 who's crushing my head there's, there's a seed somewhere here where a, a, a promise was given to the woman in the garden and a redeemer is coming and I don't know who it is it's got to come out of this tribe of people right here this tribe of people right here the people he brought out of Egypt these 12 tribes the, the deliverer is coming from this one oh it's coming from the tribe of Judah so now i got to isolate Judah and all these wars and all this stuff we're reading about Satan's after one thing he's like I'm trying to save my neck I'm after the guy who's going to crush my head well, then Jesus shows up, and he's like, I think this is the one. Because <laughs> Satan's read the Bible. <laughs> I hate to tell you all that, but he's read it. He, he quoted it back to Jesus. He's actually memorized it. But Satan's not omnipotent. So he's just read the word, and so he's like, wait a second. I know this is, this is the Messiah. Okay, well, okay. This is the head crusher. All right, well, let me tempting. That didn't work. Let me try to get him killed the whole three years he's in ministry. That didn't work. Let me try to get his friends to turn on him, and maybe he'll give up in the last minute of despair. That didn't work. Let me flog him. Let me publicly humiliate him. Let me shove a crown of thorns on its head. That didn't work. All right, we're going all the way. I'm going to have to kill this man. The head crusher's going down. I'm going to put him on a cross. They put him in the tomb, and for three days, Satan's like, I got it. From the dawn of time, Garden of Eden, I've been looking for this guy, and I got it. And then three days later, Christ raises from the dead... And sin is defeated, and the head is crushed. And God's like, no, no, you don't have it. You thought you had it, but I had this worked out from the minute I told you he was coming for you. And I'm here to tell you, Easter was last week, but it's Easter every day, y'all, because the head crusher lives, amen? So, Satan's like, well, that is a bummer. So what am I going to do now? The seed is incorruptible. 1 Peter 2.3 says we are saved and the incorruptible seed of Jesus Christ is in us. So Jesus goes, all right, I'm going to spend the rest of eternity, the rest of time that God's allowed people to live on this planet just heel striking. I'm going to be a heel striker, heel striker, heel striker. See if I can get people to give up on Jesus. Because I can't defeat him because he's already whooped me good. But let me see if I can eliminate as many people as possible from being his representatives on earth. How many of you guys have had a, a heel strike before? Oh, I tell you what, he, feet are incredibly strong and sturdy. Think about the weight they carry. They carry a little bit too much weight over here, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Ooh, they could do to carry a little less. But that's strong feet. But at the same time, feet are incredibly tender. I stubbed my pinky toe, and I thought my life was over. I was like, it's like somebody took my arm off. I crumpled to the floor. I was calling on Jesus, rolling around on the ground. I told my husband, call 911. I stubbed my pinky toe. Because feet are tender, and Satan knows that. And his business is to heel strike. It says in the amplified version in Genesis, it says he will lie in wait to strike your heel. Well, what's a heel strike look like? Well, Ali shared one on Sunday. Hey, I was having dinner with my dad, and he shared with me that he has stage four esophageal cancer. Heel strike. <laughs> what do you mean uh, they're laying you off? What do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean you don't have a job anymore? Heel strike. I'm sorry. What is a spectrum disorder? I'm confused. Why do you think my son has a spectrum disorder? Heel strike. You know, I've got this place. I've got this this area, this tissue that I, I'm a little concerned about, doctor. What do you, What do you mean? You want me to come in for tests? Heel strike. The best Satan can do is bruise heels, and I'll tell you what. They hurt. They hurt bad, and they cause you to limp. You ever bruised your heel? You know, stepped on something kind of sharp, and then, golly, every step you take, you're like, man, it reminds you that it's there. It's not till you have to get up and move and go somewhere that you remember, I've got this bruise. That's the way it is. Satan wants you just to sit still and nurse that heel. And God's like, come on, (laughs) I promise you, his head is crushed. You're limping for a little bit, but I promise you his head is crushed. Stay with me. Stay with me. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. And I've got great news for you. The best he can do is what he just did. Strike your heel. Man, church, that encourages me. Encourages me because I sit there and I said, Lord, this hurts. I will tell you, I will level with you guys right now. After Easter service on Sunday was so amazing, my mother called me on Monday and said, Sarah, you need to pray. You need to pray for your dad. We're on our way to the hospital. Uh, Your dad is in AFib again. And I've shared my testimony before with you guys on that, that my dad has AFib and we've treated that medically. And uh, it's a pretty serious condition because your heart gets out of rhythm. And the concern they have is that your heart should beat like flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on Sunday mornings. <laughs> but your heart should make that sound. That's the medical term, flip-flop. But when you're in AFib, your heart goes flip, and what happens is the blood doesn't push all the way through the valves and it will coagulate, and then you'll throw a clot. So it's pretty serious. You need to, to get to a cardiologist, you need to take medicine, they need to get you back in rhythm. And sure enough, coming out of Easter. You know, they sang that sound, Jesus, that song, Jesus Wears the Victor's Crown. They sing that song, and I could like walk on water. I'm like, fill a tub up. I'm ready. I'm ready. You know what I mean? Let's not, no, no baptism. We're having a water walking service. You know what I mean? I'm ready to take the world on. And then Monday morning, heel strike. I'm like, man, Lord, thank you, Father God. Thank you that this is the best the enemy can do. Thank you, Father God, that you can heal my dad from 1,600 miles away. And, Lord, I thank you for that. That's what I'm believing you for. And I'm going to limp a little bit the rest of the day. And I'm going to kind of favor this leg a little bit. And, Lord, I'm going to ask you to help me because you told me in your word, help my unbelief. So, God, yeah, I preach it on, on Wednesday nights and sometimes Sunday mornings, but I got to live it, too, just like y'all. And my heel hurts, too. As I say, you know what? I'm going to get through it. Well, sure enough, my mom called me like 10 hours later, said, Sarah, we were on our way to the emergency room, and your dad fell into rhythm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know what? Sometimes answers come like that. Sometimes the limp is just for a few hours, and sometimes the limp is for a few years. Sometimes the limp is for longer than we'd like. But the good news is, guys, it's the best he can do. You know, there's a beautiful scene in Joshua, it's in Joshua chapter 3, and Joshua has just assumed command of the armies of Israel. Moses has died, and just as Moses was dying, right before he died, he started prophesying, and he told Joshua, and he told the people of Israel that the arms that are underneath you are the everlasting arms. And Joshua has that promise, and then Deuteronomy ends, Moses is buried, and now Joshua's crossed the Jordan River, and now he's about to find out, okay, which arms have got me? (laughs) Who's holding me up? Because his first city he's got to take is Jericho, a walled city. And the Lord comes to Joshua, and he says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Trust me. And Joshua has that promise. Well, he's still sweating it a little bit because Jericho is a really big city. The chariots used to race on top of it. The walls were so thick. And Joshua's off praying by himself. He's about to move forward with a strategy to take this city. And he's like, I don't even know. I don't even have a plan. Have you guys ever been there where you face a challenge? And you're like, okay, we're in a bad spot because I don't even have a plan <laughs> for how to take the challenge on. It's just, I'm just looking at a hot mess of a problem. It's one thing to like say, I got a hot mess of a problem, but I think I got an answer. It's another thing to say, all I got a hot mess of a problem, y'all. <laughs> I got no answers. And Joshua's sitting there and he's like, all I've got is a hot mess of a problem. This is just Jericho. And it looks up. I want to read it to you. It's in Joshua 5.13. It says, now Joshua, Joshua was near Jericho and he looked up. And saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord have I now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant?" The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did. When I read that Paul has just taught me how I need to treat everybody on this earth, and then he says, but hold up, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. I read that scripture from Joshua, and I'm like, wow. Joshua comes up and he sees a guy with a sword drawn. And Joshua's first question is, hey, hey, are you for me? Or are you for the enemies? Which is probably what I would have asked. Big dude with a sword, I'd be like, hey, I'd like to take this moment to invite you to join my team. You know what I mean? And do you happen to have a plan? Because I don't even have a plan. But scripture tells us and in, in studying this that this man with the sword drawn is actually Jesus. He is the captain of the hosts, And he says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I going to do what you think I should do? Are you going to be for my plan? Joshua's saying, hey, hey, you on my team. That's not the question. But as the captain of the host of the Lord, have I come? Because Joshua, you're looking at a hot mess of a problem, but you're looking at a flesh and blood problem. I'm not here to fix a flesh and blood problem. I'm here to keep, kick Satan's teeth in for you. I'm here to not just fix Jericho. I'm here to set you up to possess a land. I'm not here to just deliver you from this addiction. I'm not just here to maybe make your marriage make it another six months. I'm not here just so that you stop limping. I'm here to set you up so you can walk in everything I have for you and put the enemy in his place, which is under your feet. That is what the captain of the host says to you. So when you and I are facing our problems, when you and I are in conflict with the people around us, when you and I are looking at walled cities, we've got that captain of the host right there with us. And we need to ask him, not are you with me, but say, Lord, what is your will? (laughs) You have come to do something here. Lord, what is your will? This is not about what I can see. The horizontal relationships are just a reflection of what is happening in the heavenly. So, Lord, what is your will? What do you want to do right here, right now? And that's the way I'm taking it on. Because I don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Nope. Mm -mm. That's JV stuff. (laughs) I'm taking on principalities and powers of this present darkness. So, Paul's like, look, if this is how you're going to fight, these are the tools you're going to need to fight with. And he lists off the armor of God. You know, I love that Jesus didn't show up in a robe with a lamb around his neck to help Joshua. He showed up ready for the day's work ahead. He had himself a sword in his hand, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I like that about Jesus. Like, he's not here sitting there going, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, sometimes blessed are the peacemakers, but sometimes he's like, look, I got a sword in my hand. Who are we taking the head off today of? The enemy's under my feet. Sometimes I want to sick him, Jesus You know what I mean? Get that thing off my leg. Get that, Jesus. Get it. You know what I mean? So he says, Paul's like, look, if you are going to wrestle flesh and blood, this is the armor you're going to need. And Pastor Lance did a great job on this, so I'm going to just breeze through this. You should get his teaching, but I just jotted down a couple thoughts. And he says, you're going to need the belt of truth. And what occurred to me is that truth is sometimes a heavy lift. And a belt will support your backbone. Sometimes truth is hard to lift. It's hard to share. It's hard to give. It's hard to receive. And your backbone's going to need some reinforcement. You need a belt. You need a belt to support that. And then he says, you need the breastplate of righteousness because right standing with God always starts in the heart. So let's protect that heart so that you always have right standing with God and that you are always able to boldly come before his throne with your petition and your request. Are you for me? Oh, gosh, yes, Lord. <laughs> Thank you. And he goes, My feet are shod with the gospel of peace. And I wrote, To face your enemy, you're going to need to stand on something other than your own two feet. They're strong, but they're tender. You're going to need a gospel of peace on your feet. And then it says, A shield of faith, which quenches the darts of the enemy, a helmet of salvation, that Jesus is how I see things. How I hear things, how I say things. Everything that happens in this space right here is filtered through who Jesus is to me and what he's done for me on the cross. It goes the sword of the Spirit. The only offensive weapon I have is the word of God. It says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hosea says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. You're walking around with a blade at your disposal. And because we don't know his word, we can't wield his word. And he says, look, you're going to need for these enemies, this guy's already read the book. This guy quotes the book back to your Messiah. You're going to need that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm going to close with this because there's this great verse in Ephesians six eighteen, And Isaiah, if you'll come and help me. When I read it, I like the New Living Translation version. Like, I read, like, four different versions of the Bible, you know, because I like to see what this one says. And then I want to see what this one says and, the, you know, the, the verbs they use and the nouns. But it's always the same kernel of truth. It's just sort of um, communicated in a, in a different way linguistically. But Ephesians 6.18, it says, this is how Paul has told us this whole book. This is Christ's relationship with the church. This is the divine mystery. This is how I want you to treat each other. This is how you're going to live. But remember, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But you have a captain of the Lord's host who is with you. And his job is to strike your heel. But remember, I have crushed his head. He's summing up all of this book for us from a prison cell. And in verse 18, he says, Pray in the spirit at all times. And on every occasion, stay alert, <laughs> be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I've told you all this, but this is what really matters. Pray in the spirit at all times and in every occasions. At all time and in every occasion. <sighs> it's like, yes, Lord. That's what it's going to take the vertical, the horizontal. I just gotta stay in prayer at all times and in all seasons and to be alert, be alert and be watchful. I love this old hymn. You probably know it. It was written by a woman named Annie Hawks in the 1800s and she was 37 years old, which I can relate to. I'm a bit younger and she had three children. And she was overwhelmed, 1800, she was overwhelmed. And she wrote, she said, One day as a young wife and a mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks. Suddenly I became filled with a sense of nearness to the master. I began to wonder how anyone could live without him, either in joy or in pain. Then these words were ushered into my mind, and these thoughts took full possession of me. I need thee. I need thee every hour. (sighs) Paul told us the same thing. Pray. Pray in every season. Pray in every occasion. Pray in the spirit. And Annie told us the same thing. I need him every hour.